Welcome to This Club Sucks. Grief support for parents after the lasagnas are long gone. I am your host, Melissa Monroe, here with my co-host, Alexandria Simon. Each week, we record our child loss chat on Twitter Spaces, where we explore topics around grief and trauma. Whether you are a bereaved parent, want to support bereaved parents, or exploring other sources of grief, we'll be here holding space after the lasagnas are long gone. This week, I want to welcome Noreen Vanderhoeven. I hope I said that right, Noreen. Uh, yeah, you did. Yay! Uh, Noreen is a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in grief and trauma, and uh, and I think particularly uh, suicide intervention. And we are just absolutely thrilled to have her on today it's a it's a real honor thank you so much noreen yeah i'm so happy to be here well it's our it's our honor and privilege today we're going to be discussing traumatic grief um or when grief and trauma coexist which um for i i know is true for many people in this room traumatic grief can occur uh you might see Traumatic grief, when there's a sudden unexpected death, uh, when the death is violent, and it can even happen just from losing your support system. Perhaps you lost your support system through the death or deaths. Perhaps there was extenuating circumstances, but any of those things can bring on um, a state of traumatic grief. I want to read this one quote, and then I'm going to have Noreen introduce herself. The shock and unexpected nature. I'm going to start that over. The shock and unexpected nature of a loss can be traumatizing and trigger intrusive, preoccupying, or bloat bodily responses that are essentially distorted survival mechanisms. In addition to mourning whatever or whomever was unexpectedly lost. That's by Michael Roski. I hope I pronounced his name right. Psyd. And it can be similar to a complicated grief, and I think it used to be called complicated grief. I'm going to have uh, Noreen talk on that more. Most likely if the death is traumatic and or specifically with the loss of the child, or if there are pre-existing mental health conditions, one can be at a higher risk for traumatic grief and also concurrently PTSD. Oh, I'm thrilled to have Noreen Vanderhoeven on here today, licensed clinical social worker, to talk with us about this topic. Noreen, do you want to introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I have been in practice for over 35 years, um, specifically working with suicide for uh, about the last 10 years or so. And I was the youth uh, chair for the, sorry, I was the, the chair for the Youth Suicide Prevention Committee for the American Association of Suicidology. I was on their uh, media and communications team, and that had a lot to do with making sure that um, the media was using appropriate language and when uh, maybe uh, like the death of Anthony Bourdain uh, happened, we put the wire out to make sure, again, that um, everything was appropriate. Um, I'm currently in, I own a group practice, and I am an EMDR consultant. Um, I also do brain spotting, but I work a lot with um, suicide loss survivors. So that's, yeah, that's me. I'm in Westlake Village, California. That's um really admirable and I'm, I'm so grateful to you for doing this important work and I, I cannot imagine um, the positive impact you must have on people. Um, we really you. appreciate you being here. Um, did you want to say anything um, from your own perspective on treating folks or working with folks who have a grief uh, who have grief and perhaps PTSD or grief stemming from a 
traumatic event uh, concurrently. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's there are so many word terms for it that they call um, traumatic grief. They also call it, um, you know, complex. Uh, grief or complex PTSD, depending upon what it is. And it really depends upon there are so many different um, twists on it because there are people who have, you know, this loss and it's this is their one traumatic thing that they've ever had. But then there are also people who growing up have had other um, things with attachment or with loss as well. And then they have this happen and that's what, you know, complicates it um, or makes it more traumatic that you really have to go back and, and deal with the old stuff before you can deal with the current stuff. Um, it's, it's like a volcano really is how I try and describe it to my clients that if you continue, you put stuff in the volcano from the top, eventually the volcano is going to blow. And But if you start pulling out those bottom layers, that volcano is going to you know, implode and give it less power rather than explode. So by the time you get to you know, processing the current trauma, it's still traumatic, but it's less traumatic. And you're able to um, be able to process that a little easier um and unfortunately most people do have some form of you know traumatic grief when they do have a loss there is something that was a loss um going back to when they were younger so it does get pretty complicated yeah i mean it sure does there's several people in this room who lost their child like i did uh, sudden unexplained death in childhood, which is, they don't like it being explained this way, but it's, I just find it's the easiest way to explain it. It's like SIDS, but kids are between the ages of 1 and 18. It basically means they have no idea why they died after a thorough death investigation and autopsy. And I know that, uh, I know for myself, <laughs> and I know that many of my fellow SUDC parents really struggled with guilt. And um, when I was doing some research on traumatic and complicated grief, uh, guilt is mentioned. And I just wondered how often you see that, particularly with bereaved parents, you know, at as I was experiencing it, and everyone said, oh, you can't feel guilty, Melissa, you can't feel guilty. Well, I mean, first of all, we know that telling someone what to or not feel rarely works. But I just remember thinking, oh, my God, we feel guilty if they don't eat their vegetables. We, we feel guilty if they skin their knee. We, we feel guilty if they don't share with their siblings. If you find your child dead in their bed, I'm pretty sure guilt's going to come up and I know I'm going to have to deal with it but it felt to me like I don't know how it's not universal and so I, I wondered if you could talk to us about um, guilt and or shame in relation to um, traumatic grief Noreen sure uh, you know what Melissa I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that number one no one can tell you how you should feel or not feel that's, you know, everybody is entitled to their feelings and their feelings are theirs. You know, if you're experiencing uh, grief and your best friend's experiencing grief, you may be experiencing it differently. So, I, you know, that's number one, I would say. Number two, yes, guilt comes up so much because basically it's what could I have done? What did I do wrong? Um, shame comes up sometimes usually shame is related to earlier events that happened but shame is like you know it's like uh, Brene Brown this is how she describes it as like shame is I am a bad person and guilt is like I did something wrong you know there, it's not you as a person it's what happened um, so uh, you know I think that the parents in particular, I was recently working with a couple also who lost their baby um, to, you know, the unexplained um, sudden infant death. And I think I had told you that, Melissa. Uh, and 
they just kept going through the scenario over and over and over again for weeks before they came to see me. Um, their uh, OBGYN was the one who referred them. And I see this a lot. And so what we try and do is, you know, work with the feelings underlying the grief. Um, and that's why in EMDR, it's so helpful because um, some of, you know, these thoughts, you, you have like what's called a negative cognition. You know, it's like a negative core belief about yourself or something you did or didn't do. And so we try and work with that. Um and really help them process what that that grief so it's not like sitting right in the front of their face that that memory kind of needs to go to a different part of your brain so that it's an event that happened you will never ever forget this happened but you will not have the um, bodily symptoms that you do with all these feelings um, and I think that's what ends up being so powerful so and that's really with any type of somatic therapy it's not just with EMDR yes thank you for that explanation I know that we spoke about um, the fact that I, I mean I, I don't know where I would be today if if it were not for EMDR therapy and the and the ther and the tra trauma-based therapy that I did afterwards sure. as I um, was telling Noreen and some of the people in this room already know when um, my daughter first died and I did start therapy right away and uh, I felt like talking about it was first of all I could barely talk for I which most of you know is no problem for me generally um, but I felt if I talked to somebody for even a half hour about something unrelated, I felt like I had to go to sleep. I mean, it, it was so exhausting for me to talk. And it was particularly exhausting to have to explain what happened. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we didn't know what happened. And so everyone wanted to know what happened, what happened, what happened. And uh, we, we had no answers and I could barely talk anyway, which is mainly why I started writing. Um, and then I, went to therapy and that was more talking and as I was telling Noreen and uh, Beth is in here Beth knows this talk therapy just made me feel like I was spinning my wheels now this is no indictment on talk therapy talk therapy is is great and and it helps many many people but in the fresh throes of my trauma it felt like it was making it worse for me and so I asked if they, uh, if the counseling center, which is, I went to a sliding scale counseling center, Southern California counseling center, which is an amazing place. I raise money for them to this day. Um, I asked them if they did EMDR or other trauma therapy and they did. And when I started that, things started changing really, 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 really fast. And, um, particularly guilt. So all, all of, you know, they talk about the stages of guilt and when I read them again, or the stages of grief and death and dying, when I read them again after Alice died, I thought, well, all of my eggs are in the guilt basket. I mean, I don't even know if I've touched any of these other ones. And I don't know how I'm going to move forward with the paralyzing amount of guilt that I had. So it was clear to me that I had to work on that. And I want to say within three sessions of EMDR, it, it was drastically reduced. And I want to say after five sessions, I, it was gone. And I, I, every once in a while, I will catch myself doing that. And I, but I can recognize it and say, ah, that's guilt. That's me going on my guilt trip and, and stop it and redirect my thinking. So can I was hoping, Noreen, you could explain to people a little bit, and it also greatly uh, helped the physical symptoms that I was having, the, sh the shakiness, the couldn't breathe, the dry mouth, the panic attacks, all of that was, was helped so much so quickly that I, I would have laughed in someone's face. It, 
truly, if they would have said, oh, these symptoms will be gone in like eight sessions of this particular therapy, I, there's no way. I, I would never, ever believe them. Um, but it did. And I wondered, Noreen, if you could tell us why some of the trauma-informed therapy modalities help so much, particularly with those physical symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting because tr any kind of trauma we feel in our body. So that's where your trauma is stored. Even if it's 20, 30, 40 years later, it's stored there. That's why a lot of people um, have unexplained illnesses. They have um, uh, autoimmune diseases that because you know you it never gets out of your body so it just continues to break you down that way and people just aren't aware of it and so what happens is when you experience an event whether it's good or bad that event stays with you right so the good stuff you want to stay in your you know forefront of your memory so you can remember these things but the you know sad bad tragic upsetting things you want to to the long-term memory and unless it's processed to get that you know that stuff out of your body so whether it be you know people always feel like a lump in their throat or their heart is racing or they have a stomach ache or a headache or their hands are shaky or sweaty you know whatever it is it could be anything um you want to move it. So when I first started doing uh, EMDR for, uh, you know, the this kind of population, and even prior to that, I, it was when the Route 91 concert happened, and that was in 2017. And these people came in, same thing. Most of them who didn't have any other event, they were in and out of my office in six weeks, and they were able to go to concerts, do whatever. But I'll never forget the first client I had from that concert came in in her bathrobe, her hair just kind of, you know, a mess, and her boyfriend had to drive her. And she was one of the ones that was in within six weeks was gone, going back to concerts, going to, you know, um, Disneyland. A big thing was they all wanted to go to Disneyland. I also ran a group and um, they felt like that was their happy place. So that would, you know, make them feel better. Well, what happened was is that was even worse because so they thought like the fireworks would be wonderful. Well, guess what? That sounds like gunshots. And so even though it's not a gunshot, your body relates that sound still to that event. So that was terrorizing for them. They, um, like in the Pirates of Caribbean ride, it's a very tight uh, line. You know, you stand one person in front of the other. And then when you go inside the ride, there's a lot of that. Well, they then felt very contained, cramped, unable to get out, trapped, because you pretty much are. You can't get out of the line until you go through the whole line. Um, and so that was kind of similar from the venue and being trampled on and feel, you know, feeling very trapped in that. So it, it's not the same event that is triggering, but it's those bodily feelings that come back up. So, you know, what you want to do, that's kind of in your fight, flight, freeze, you know, fawn part of your brain. And as you do, whether it be, um, you know, somatic experiencing or EMDR or brain spotting, that starts to, it processes those feelings in your brain. And it, it sounds crazy, but it shifts that memory to the part of the brain where it needs to be. So by the time you're done, you will never ever forget that your child died, but you will not kind of like what Melissa said, you will not have that guilt. You will not have, you know, that sick feeling in your stomach every time you, that's all gone. It's still a very sad event, but it's going to be like any other sad event you've experienced in that respect. Um, it, it's beyond fascinating. Then with the borderline bar shooting, which was um, 10 minutes from my office, in Thousand Oaks, uh, that was 2018. 
I've seen uh, many clients from that as well. And the same thing, most of them were out in six weeks. The exceptions were the clients that went to the Route 91 concert, because it was a country concert, the year before, never processed any of that, and now they're in another shooting in the same kind of situation. Those clients took longer because first you still had to go back and process that first event. Um, or the second one was not going to leave. It would still be there. So I think that's kind of probably my best explanation um, in, you know, explaining how it works. It's still, you know, I always tell my clients, I wish that I would videotape them when they first come in. Because then when they leave, they're like, oh, I never felt that. I wasn't like that. That that first client I had back in 2017 for for the you know concert she came back to me maybe i would say eight months ten months later because her boyfriend had some seizures and she was traumatized by that and she said oh my god this is so much worse this is worse than the concert was and i'm like mm, no i said I, I think you forget like how traumatic that was and how bad that was you you couldn't even get dressed and you couldn't go to work and you couldn't drive and she goes I would do that again any day over this. And this basically, it was two sessions with her and she was done and good to go. And I haven't seen her now. It's been five years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I have some it's powerful. That, it's so powerful. I, I, I know some people that were at both of those um, shootings. Horrible. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say something about, uh, the like this physical memories it, that is no joke um i'd never really had a pan i mean maybe i had some panic attacks in college that i didn't realize were panic attacks but you know and, and mainly just being nervous for a test or whatever but i'd never really had a panic attack until about a week after my daughter died and luckily there were other people in the house to help me real i didn't know what was happening heart pounding uh mind just suddenly consumed with the images uh you know flashbacks and uh intense paralyzing guilt that felt like it could kill me like th it was so intense um and after a few weeks you know you, have, you can't really sort these things out until you have enough data points but after a few weeks i started to realize they were always happening on tuesday it was always happening around the time she died and it was happening when I bent over because I realized she was dead when I leaned over the crib to pick her up. And at, at the time, I didn't realize that at first because when the panic attacks would, uh, would hit, I wasn't thinking about that at that time. I was leaning over to pick up a letter that fell on the ground. I was leaning over to you know, pick up shoes and take them to another room. I was leaning over to sweep the floor. I was never really consumed with the thoughts. It was more like I leaned over to do something and then like a missile would hit me. Um, so it took a few weeks to figure out. And then I thought, whoa, that is so insane. My body remembers that even though I'm not thinking it's Tuesday, even though I'm not thinking about the event, my body knows when it leans over on a Tuesday, the last time that happened, someone was dead. And I, I, it just blew my mind that, um, that that physical relationship and even the proprioception, the, the memories of the proprioception is, is really uh, incredible. And again, that all went away with EMDR. I want to ask you one more question, Noreen, and then we're going to open it up to people's questions um, or comments or shares. Uh, could you explain to people the different, there are different um, trauma modalities, EMDR being one of them and the one that I did. I know that there's also somatic experiencing, there's brain spotting, um, and I know there's a couple newer ones. And could you maybe uh, give us a short description of what the differences might be, at least between EMDR and brain spotting? Sure. Um, EMDR uses what's called bilateral stimulation. 
And that is, it doesn't matter, you know, it started out originally where the therapist would move their fingers in front of your eyes and just your eyes would go back and forth. And so that really stimulates both sides of your brain. But as, you know, the therapy continued, it was found that any type of bilateral stimulation um, was would be useful. So a lot of people use uh, these like little tappers. So that's kind of like a little buzzer, maybe like a pod size, maybe the size of a quarter or bigger that you hold in your hand and that they buzz alternatively, just like your eyes would go back and forth alternatively. This is the same thing. Or you could take your hands and you can cross your arms and you can do tapping alternatively or on your knees alternatively um walking is even bilateral stimulation if you think about it you're walking foot you know one foot forward one foot forward one foot that's bilateral stimulation and that's what that's based on um and then it's also based on these um negative cognitive beliefs that you have about yourself um and it do you want it to be how will it look you know how would you prefer it look and so that's how that kind of works is through the bilateral stimulation Um, although brain spotting uses bilateral stimulation with um, headphones so the music goes from one ear to the other ear uh, it is the most interesting thing ever Um, it is very calming sometimes if it's you know slow music you can um search it by uh like on spotify or an apple music or whatever uh is david grand bilateral stimulate uh bilateral music and you have to wear earphones because otherwise you don't hear it going from one ear to the other but that's the same thing it's a bilateral stimulation some people who do brain spotting they say the music is too distracting for them but basically with brain spotting you find a spot where what you know you're talking to the client first about you know what is it where do they feel this in their body and kind of what comes up for them you know um what feeling are you know what feelings are they having and uh then you just you there's a lot of ways to do it but the the first way you learn is you have the client follow their eyes along a wand and you do it very slowly and as the client moves their eyes when they start doing like a lot of eye fluttering or blinking um or you can see facial changes you know you've come across some point so that is kind of like where you look is where the trauma is. And you just have them look at it in that once they find that spot, you kind of fine tune the spot and they just look at that one spot. Um, they always try and look away. You just kind of bring them back to that one spot because they're seeing that you know trauma. And as they're doing it, you're just kind of walking, you know, walking them through verbally and they could talk through it usually emdr um, people don't talk they just kind of process in their head um ah thank you for posting that for the brain spotting uh music um so that's different the the somatic experiencing is also very different i don't know a lot about it um but i have several uh colleagues that do it and find it also very helpful because it whatever type of trauma therapy you use in the end it's all about where is it stored in your body so um that's kind of the differences between those two and and with emdr i'm a consultant so i'm training people who have been initially trained i train them to become certified and then consultants if they want the brain spotting i uh, just i've taken um, their training. I have not become certified yet in that, but I use it uh, interchangeably sometimes. So sometimes I'm processing something with a client in EMDR and they just get stuck and they cannot, you know, get that disturbance to go any lower. And then I change to brain spotting. And for whatever reason, their eye is able to pick up on that one spot and then they're able to finish processing the trauma. So I find them both very helpful. That's fascinating. Thank you for explaining that. 
Sure. I, I, I actually spoke during my um, EMDR. I found that when I, even though I didn't want to speak most of the time, I found that within the little cocoon of EMDR, I, I heard myself say things that felt like they never went through my mind. And um, those things were really helpful. So I, I spoke and found that helpful, but I know it's different for everyone. I appreciate you explaining that. Did anyone have any questions or comments or uh, things that they'd like to share? Dr. A? Um, thank you for all these, Maureen. I, I never heard of brain spotting before. Um, are these things that people can do on their own? Let's say somebody can't afford a therapist. Is, is this kind of therapy something they can do by themselves? No, they most definitely not themselves. It's first of all, um, you have to really be trained in this to know there's more to it than just, you know, having them look at one spot or there's more to it than just, you know, um, the bilateral simulation for EMDR. It's really then guiding them through these negative and positive um, beliefs. And you never know what's going to come up. So that's also, you know, the other danger of, I have clients who say, oh, I'm going to buy the tappers and I can do it at home myself. And I tell them that, like, I really discourage them from doing that because if something else comes up that they're not aware of, then that could really, you know, kind of, set them off and trigger them and then they're what are they going to do then so it's really specific training and it's for therapists and i think you know as far as not being able to afford it i know like melissa said she went to um this counseling center that did have a sliding scale and i know that most clinicians have sliding scales in our office we have just like a set amount for both myself and my my associates um as to you know, how many low fee clients or sliding scales we can take. And then there's also an amazing resource um, called Open Path. And on Open Path, it's um, a sliding scale between, I believe it's uh, $25 or $35 and $60. It's whatever the client can afford. And they look on Open Path and the therapists are, have all different kinds of modalities there. So that's um, a way that they can also see someone if they really can't afford, you know, a lot. Great question, um, Dr. A, and thank you for that answer. Yeah, there's, um, I know from my own experience, there, there's no way I could have predicted where my session could take me. And one of the things that the the therapist is skilled in doing is it gets really intense. Like you're part of you is in the trauma still and the therapist because they're trained in this can tell if you're getting too far into it and then they bring you back to um a grounding image that you had already established with them or a nurturing image there's different images that you you create the first two sessions are kind of more set up you don't really do the work yet if you're doing it properly i do know some parents are like oh i tried it once with my therapist and it didn't work well that's not really how it's supposed to work um it's my understanding uh that the first two sessions are really set up you're figuring out which kind of bilateral stimulation you want do you want the tappers do, do the does the visual work better for you do the audio phones work for you you set levels and you come up with these images with your therapist that they can then bring they can kind of bring you back and get you settled for a minute so that you can continue exploring the traumatic moment. Did I explain that decently, Noreen? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's kind of like what you spoke to also, so is that you never have any idea of what is going to come up. You just don't. Um, I had a client come to me 
for some things that are currently going on, anxiety-related and work-related, and something came up from very, very early in her childhood that she would, first of all, she barely remembered, and then she's like, is that is that real? Like, did this happen? And I'm like, we don't make up our memories, you know? People talk about, like, false memories and all of that. That's whatever you believe happened, you're believing it in the way you perceive it happened, you know? Um, so let's say it just, it's, let's use the example of abuse, right? You as a victim or a survivor is going to see the abuse in a different way as your perpetrator. So yes, it happened, that's your memory. And a lot of times we don't have, you know, access to that in our conscious brain. But, but when we are tapping into all these other feelings and cognitions of maybe, you know, like I'm not safe or, um, you know, I did something wrong, whatever it is, all a lot of old stuff might come up. So you just never know. Nope, you never know. And I just want to acknowledge that uh, my dear, dear friend, whom I will call Bubba, <laughs> is in the room and I uh, deeply appreciate it and I would not um, I would not be here if not for my de- <laughs> uh oh sorry uh, I would not be here if not for what he did for me after my daughter died I could never right. be repeated yeah. uh, and you know what though Melissa don't ever apologize for you know, um, having feelings and show expressing your feelings and crying. I think, you know, that's beautiful that you have a friend that is so important to you and, and it's okay. You know, it's, it's sad and, and you're so grateful to him. So it's, it's all good. Everyone that knows me is grateful to him because he, uh, he became my executive functioning, my, uh, press secretary, like, uh, he he just really handled stuff and perhaps um uh, anyway uh it's nice to see him in here thank you mr jb you have a question thanks for having this space and the host co-host and guest speakers and listeners and i want to give a special uh hello thank you to bubba whomever he might be because he helped you get through what was a traumatic experience for you, life-changing, and we can't do this without help. That's one of the most important things I learned, and I was a loner before my experience. The one person who helped me get through the trauma of 12 years in the military doing things no human being was ever created to actually do was my wife. Uh, Just the sight of her, her, the sound of her voice, the smile, all these things were therapy for me after that time in the military. Then in 2000, I lost her and my son in a car accident. So there was no one. And I understand your ties and connection to Bubba because we all need a Bubba. None of, we don't all have that, but I think we all need that when, in times of trauma. And I don't know that... I really belong in this space because my whole experience was so much different. I mean, I knew why my son died. He was nine. I knew who was responsible. I was. Uh, They were in a car accident where I should have been with them driving, and I chose to stay home and finish a project for a client while they took a road trip that was supposed to be a family road trip. I was going to join them later. Uh, I chose to chase the money instead of be there with them and of course you get people tell you well you know it's not your fault you couldn't predict that Uh, there's no way you could have known but that doesn't ease that guilt doesn't ease that feeling of if only I should have done this or that and losing a child no matter what the circumstances or the cause it's the worst thing you could possibly experience There is no therapy. For me, there was no therapy that would help me with that. And I was extremely angry, angry to the point of scaring myself. And I had to figure out a way to take care of all that, keep myself safe, keep the people around me safe. And luckily, I found ways to do that because therapy and 
uh, talking to other people just wasn't my thing. But I just wanted to uh, explain that this space and spaces like this are what people like me needed back then, but they didn't exist. But I'm glad it's here for people now. And I mean, I used to, I, when I first came to spaces, I tried to host grief spaces, but I, I wasn't good at it. I may try it again in, in a few weeks or months, but it's just, it's what's needed for people to come together and, and talk and express and just be around other human beings who are real. And that's pretty much what I wanted to say. I'm going to drop back down to listeners so somebody else get a mic if they need it. And thank you, Melissa, Dr. Alexander, and Noreen. Oh, thank you um, so much, Mr. JB. Um, I'm so happy that you found the space and that you find it helpful. And uh, you're right. I'm I'm very lucky to have a Bubba, and I'm I hope that everyone does he should give Bubba lessons <laughs> uh, that's really not a joke though he really should I have another friend Tommy who should also give uh, Tommy lessons uh, um, having someone that's that that is that there for you is it is indispensable and um, it has been one of the things I've tried to do in the aftermath, uh, it, I, I try as much as possible to to be there for other people the way I had some people there for me, uh, and it makes a big difference. And then uh, it helps me because, of course, at first I felt guilty about it because I had all my eggs in the guilt basket. I mean, I could turn anything into a guilt trip, including receiving help. Um, and maybe mostly receiving help. Um, so yes, we we could all use that, and we also have to learn how to open up to that, which can be really tricky. <laughs> it can be really, really tricky, especially I was always in the helping professions. Um, I'm definitely more comfortable helping than being helped, and it was a uh, and it really was my friend Bubba who grabbed literally grabbed me my the shoulders and forced eye contact with me, which is the only way anyone could get my brain to work and said, you need the help. You have to say yes. And I was like, Oh, uh, okay. And then I had to just keep telling myself that over and over and over again, because some part of me knew that this is a whopper. There's no way you can do this by yourself. It's not even possible. Um, so some part of me knew that, but it, it took the right person saying and doing you know saying it in a certain way for, for it to get my brain um steve did you have a question i just want to say thank you that was a really heartfelt story um j named jb i'm just even though our stories are different we would i'm here for you and uh yeah and also, I, I have a couple other points I just wanted to say quickly. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little, getting a little choked. <laughs> I just, yeah, the, having a support partner was key. I, uh, I think I said this on a previous session, but I remember just telling my wife we were not even maybe 10 minutes in. I, we just like looked at each other and I said, look, if we don't stick together, that's the only chance we have at this. Everything will fall apart. So just finding that Bubba or whoever it may be is very, very, a very key factor. Thank you so much for sharing, Steve. And um, yes, I wanted to say to Mr. J Thank you for reminding me. Also, Mr. JB, this this room is absolutely for you. This is not just for SUBC parents, and I don't even want it to be only for bereaved parents. Um, something I, Steve, could you mute yourself for me? We're hearing a lot of background noise. I'm so, thank you so much. Um, as I discussed with Noreen, I and other people, I really want this to be a space 
not only for bereaved parents. We are so grief inept as a society. And so many of us are only figuring out things about grief, figuring out how to support around grief and death and dying once the shit hits the fan. And uh, that's, you know, a, an appropriate time to, to learn. But the best time to learn is before the shit hits the, the fan. The more we know, the more resources we have, the more we've opened ourselves to explore these topics that we all want to avoid before the shit hits the fan, the better we're personally going to be when the shit hits the fan and the better able we're going to be able to, you know, be a Bubba or a, a support partner for someone who's experiencing their shit hitting the fan. Um, so this room is open to, to everyone. Um, I, I think I really would like grief and death and dying to not be something we feel like we have to like sit in the closet and deal with quietly. It's, it's the whole problem. Grief is not a pathology in and of itself. It's a natural response to losing someone or something that you love, but it's, it's the stuff that we do to grief that makes it a pathology. Would, would you agree, Noreen? Yes, absolutely. You know, and, and people talk about like these stages of grief and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And, and I think that, you know, her theory was great at the time, but kind of what we've found over the years is that there is no linear you know, form of grief. It doesn't follow any stages. It's very messy. And if you think about like a tangled ball of yarn and trying to untangle it, um, that's what it is, you know, and then like re-rolling it. So it's, you know, it, it's all good. And, and to be honest with you, I've seen so many people who are grieving the loss of their lives in general since COVID has started really in the last six months. It's really you know, um, popped off that I'm seeing a lot of these uh, clients. And some of my clients are coming back to me for that reason because they feel so isolated and they're they're grieving what their life was before. And um, I have one client who it's just him and his wife. They're in their 70s. And up until this last week, um, he did not socialize with anybody for two years because they were so afraid that they were going to get sick and get COVID, you know, both being elderly that, you know, they had some health issues. So, um, but finally he kind of bit the bullet and is seeing people outside and at, you know, a distance a little bit. And it's really changed, you know, his life and his thinking, but it's brought up other issues of grief and loss that he's had in the past. So, yes, I do think that it's not, grief um you know being pathological it's uh i just don't think grief is pathological period i think in the end it's however you choose to deal with or not deal with things that become you know dangerous pathological or you know continue on in your life so i think that's kind of my best explanation Yes, thank you so much. Um, and yet I've seen so many times the, uh, one death bringing up unresolved issues around other losses for people. Um, I, I'm an acupuncturist, um, doctor of Chinese medicine, and, and I always joke that they come for the pain, but they stay for the psychology. They're, <laughs> uh, most, most of them keep coming for more psychology reasons but um so many times with my bereaved parent friends with my patients with my other friends i see that you know they might say oh you know i don't know why i'm seeing a celebrity i don't know why this celebrity death has hit me so hard well it's almost always because it's it's hitting on some unresolved issues and some, you know, I don't know, know if this is a word, but stunted grief process around someone that they loved is, is what I see a lot. Um, I'm going to go to Beth, but first I wondered if, Steve, you had any 
anything else you wanted to say or were you were you done um i was think i didn't what you said earlier about the physical symptoms that never really like never really crossed my mind until now and i'm i'm sorry you had to be the one to find her in the crib that same thing happened to me um for us it was my daughter passed away three days before her her birthday so it was the day of her birthday party so whenever i have two other young boys sir whenever they're approaching their birthdays that's when i feel a lot of i guess the physical so if if there's any similarity at all i will feel something and for me like when i have like high anxiety sometimes maybe tmi but i have to go to the bathroom and yeah i never really thought about that the physical of just bending over and it reminds you of it yeah the um alice died 11 days after her birthday and i was actually standing under her birthday banner when they pronounced her dead so i completely empathize with that birthday situation and um i'm so sorry uh, that that got easier for me over the years and I, i'm not sure how far you are are out um steve but um the emdr really did help with that also if um if you ever want to give that a try beth did you have a question? Um, I do, and I, I, um, I wanted to first say that you, Melissa, have been a Bubba to us, <laughs> you know, and um, thank you for that. So I, I hope this isn't too off topic because um, I haven't lost a child myself, although I have lost some people dear to me um, but I wanted to ask um, Noreen or anyone else, um, I've been, I'm adopted and I was um, um, relinquished at birth and I've been doing a lot of reading lately about pre-verbal trauma and infant separation. And so I wanted to ask Noreen if it, in your experience is EMDR ever useful in a situation like this where a trauma is from a pre-verbal state? Yes, and um, I was going to tell you that, but um, yes, there are um, several like, different protocols for preverbal trauma, but it's, it's so, so, so important. And I don't know, I think I was doing some consultation earlier with um, somebody and I gave him the example of, I was seeing a client um, who was referred to me by a therapist only for EMDR. And she was seeing the client for talk therapy, and it's adjunctive EMDR, and that happens a lot. And um, so my intake starts like at the mother's pregnancy. You know, what do you know or don't know? Or and as you move on, and so what I found out was that this girl was a twin, which um, I, I knew she was a twin, but uh, they were born three months premature. And the other twin went home after, I think, like four or five months. And she stayed in the, the NICU um, quite a bit longer. And, you know, there is that lack of attachment. And, you know, the mother didn't show up a lot. And she really um, failed to thrive. And even today, that was kind of one of the issues. She's very frail and thin. And um, the other twin's doing fine. So when I asked the other therapist, like, are you aware of this? She had no clue that this client was three months premature and in the NICU. So, you know, going wow. back, we were able to work with those, you know, pre-verbal memories. Um, I've done a lot of pre-verbal work and it's just so, so powerful. Um, a lot of times it's also, you know, people tell you stories about what your um, life was like at that early age and kind of what happened and the reason why and you know on and on and um i was seeing an 11 year old who continuously heard of this story that when he was eight months old he had um oh, i forget it's like a respiratory virus uh, rsv 
that little kids get and that he was he had a fear of separation all of a sudden and of course that came from when he was eight months old and he was like strapped to a board which is how they take uh um, x-rays of babies and he was strapped to this board and took the x-ray and so the parents stood at the other end of the room but they were still separated from him and so even though he didn't remember the memory except for what he was been told that's what he internalized and so um, you know we were able to process it that way and it's fascinating when you do that work and how much it really then makes such a difference in you know, today in your life, you know, currently. Um, the one thing also, Melissa, I had to add is I have a client at 12, so I need to leave in about one or two minutes. Um, but, you know, just say thank you so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, if people are interested in getting in touch with me, they can find me um, on my website, which is my consulting website. It's just easier to find me on that one. Um, is Noreen Vanderhoeven LCSW.com. And you can probably find it in my It's in the uh, chat. Yeah. I put it in I put it in the chat attached awesome. to this. So even if people listen later, they'll be able to find you. Perfect. Yeah. Feel free to, to email me. And um, I'm licensed both in, in California and Nevada. So if you know if uh, anyone out there is in Nevada and, and looking for any type of services for loss, I'm happy to see them as well. So well, thank you so much. Thank you yeah, so much for being here, Noreen. We really appreciate it. And uh, I, I just really deeply appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your expertise and with us and your compassion. And uh, thank, again, you, thank, thank you. you for being here. I'm going to continue the space for an, another minute so we can wrap up with uh, what we can do if we find ourselves in traumatic grief. But I just want to say another uh, thank you to Noreen for thank being here. Thank you again, Melissa. It was great chatting here. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a beautiful day. Thanks. You too. Um, when we find ourselves in a place of traumatic grief, there are things that we can do. One of the most important is to establish a routine and structure. And if your routine and structure includes at least one thing that you enjoy, it makes a big difference. If our sleeping is dysregulated, if our meal times are dysregulated, if all of these basic parts of life are dysregulated, it's really difficult for your body and your psyche and your hormones to, to become regulated again. So a lot of people don't like to hear this one and uh, because it sounds like something your mother would say just to be annoying but, but it really makes an, an enormous enormous difference also people seem to not like easy answers <laughs> I found in my years of uh, being an acupuncturist and trying to help people with their their health they don't want it to be that easy <laughs> but it really is often easier than we think. Establishing a routine and structure is really, really important. And to have something in our routine regularly that we enjoy makes an enormous difference. Some people can be helped by grounding exercises. There's many different ways to do this. And Graciela's in here and I know does a lot of breath work and this kind of work. So check out Graciela's page. Uh, I know that she does a lot of this kind of work. I do a lot of this kind of work with my patients. Uh, there's so many resources on that. Um, knowing that what you're experiencing isn't uncommon. Feeling grief can be isolating in and of itself. Uh, experiencing trauma is entirely isolating because you can't even get out of your own biology. You're, 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 you have, your biology has hijacked you basically. And um, so that is also isolating and then combine them. It can feel very isolating, but reminding yourself, and it's not a contest. This doesn't mean like you put yourself in the grief Olympics, reminding yourself that other people have experienced this and you, you are not alone. And if you need a group like this or a group period, seeking that out, uh, can really make a difference.
there's sometimes, especially with trauma, can be a, a tendency to avoid it. And that can sometimes get you through a minute. But I would really encourage some trauma-informed therapy where you can explore the feelings safely with someone who's trained to guide you. And again, we put up um, the open path resources for the affordable therapy. I'm going to add the Southern California Counseling Center's information when we finish this chat. And lastly, to lean on others for support. To, this can be really hard, especially if you're used to being the helper. But really allow yourself to lean on your friends. This was one of my biggest lessons that I had to learn. And it was hugely important. And also, conversely, allow yourself to be leaned on at different times. The, the more liter literate we are about grief and trauma, the better we can go through the phases of our lives and the better we'll be able to be there for others through their tough times. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. And uh, again, you might want to check out Graciela's page. I know that she does some, some work related to this area that we have discussed today. And thank you for being here, Dr. A, my fearless co-host, Rachel, Beth, Love you, Steve, Mr. JB, Graciela, Jackie, Vince, Yo, Vinny, Boom Boom, Mo, Eric, Jill, Christy, and I'm not sure who this last listener is. Elusive Enigma. Oh, I like that. Thank you all for being here and everyone that was here earlier. Thank you for joining us today. For more information on the show or my other work, you can check out thisclubsucks.com or melissamariemonroe.com or you can find me on Twitter at Triple M Meaning. May you experience some gentleness on your path today. Oh.